to the Creative Curmudgeon. Today we will be talking to Bill Badgley. In addition to being a professor at UCLA, Bill has directed documentaries about the band Carp, the band The Slits, the filmmaker Don Letts, and the noted Beatles enthusiast Mark David Chapman. His current project is the podcast Killer Tape, which is about serial killer David Berkowitz, aka Son of Sam. I was curious if like, because yeah, when I started going to like smaller shows in high school, like that was definitely empowering. Like, oh, like I could, I could do this too. I'm, I'm, I'm playing on like the same stage as like these people who I love. Like it, it was that like kind of what got you into like filmmaking to an extent or just like, you know, the arts in general was just like that sort of empowerment from that. Absolutely. Right. It's the punk ethos, right? It's the, it's the, it's the thing that made punk punk when it broke off from the uh, music that was around in the seventies was the fact that, you know, you did not have to be Eric Clapton. You did Mm -hmm. not have to know how to play a solo or how to play at all. Like Mm -hmm. really all you had to do was just have the guts to give it a shot. Um, And that was the only sort of like ticket price. And when the ticket price drops to that, then you have a whole new different group of people being involved, you know, and my mom was like a, uh, not professionally a classic piano, classical pianist, but a trained classical pianist. And I never, you know, so she spent her entire career playing, you know, essentially what are other people's songs. Um, that's kind of a reductionist way to put it, but, um, and I never played anybody else's songs ever. You know, I wanted something entirely different out of it. I wanted to be involved. I wanted to be able to make it up on the spot and use it it just as an expressive tool uh, in that moment in an entirely different way than she did, you know, partly through rebellion, right? You don't want to be like your parents. So um, I just took it in like a different direction and um, did that for a really long time uh, in Federation X, you know, we played all over the world, had a Mm -hmm. great time. Um, And I think that I always, well, weirdly. So one time I brought, when we put out our record, American folk horror, I took the songs um, specifically the song structures back to my mom. And I was like, what are these, you know, because she's classically trained. She's like, well, this is folk music, right? Like the way the, the way the lyrics are structured, the way it's telling this story, and that was sort of the first, so that's why we, I called the first record American Folk Horror or the first record on a um, label American Folk Horror because she kind of crocked me to this idea that we were essentially, or I was essentially writing folk music, which is essentially storytelling. So that was 2000, and I was, that was when I first started to kind of like realize that in my life I'd taken a part of my generation, but in that had figured out or found out or accidentally became a writer of sorts or a storyteller. So I always kind of at that point, it didn't happen for many, many more years, but I knew that I wanted the stories to get bigger, maybe bigger than they could have been in a band. Mm-hmm. And so, and it was time to sort of leave music and um, dedicate myself to film, you know, I wanted to learn how to make a movie. I wanted to learn how to do the jump at that time, which was, I think the longest thing I'd made at that time was three minutes video to 86 minutes is quite a jump. And I was, you know, everybody was like, oh, you're supposed to, you should do film festivals and make shorts and stuff. And I was like, are shorts commercially tradable, you know, 
pieces and they're like, no, 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 fuck that. I don't want to do that. You know, I want to, I want to go, you know, I was used to music where you wake up in the morning, you play a show that night, you get paid, you know, you make a record, you immediately take it out. I was used to living in a world where you could immediately make a viable product that could at least hold the potential to be a real part of your life fiscally so that you didn't have to divide your attentions, which is my, was my main concentration was that I did not want to divide my concentration. This is what I wanted to do all day long, which is going to mean that it had to have some kind of financial aspect. So I picked the world's most unfinancially, you know, uh, beneficial topic, which was carp. You know, I was like, <laughs> I was like, this is a great story. People in the Northwest knew about this story um, and nobody was really talking about it. You know, there's this kind of, I wouldn't go as far as to call it a Midwestern politeness, but this kind of almost like a Northwestern like individualism that sort of keeps people out of each other's business. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody, when I, fact, when I started it, everybody was like, you shouldn't do that. You know, it's too dark. It's too personal. Um, it's none of your business and all this kind of stuff. And just because think, of like how like tragic, like a couple of yeah. the stories were in carpet, like they, they just thought like you shouldn't like draw like attention to it. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. It was like this dirty kind of secret and people just didn't know what to do with it and just didn't want to talk about it. And, and uh, I just sort of ignored that because I realized that it was this really great story and um i knew at least in my own heart that i had nothing but respect um uh for the people involved and that that was going to come out in the film um and one of the first things i noticed when i started um, i just was referencing the other day full like you know almost 15 years later that i was like realizing that people that i was interviewing this was therapy you know what I mean? Sure. They, needed to, they needed to talk about this and they had nobody to talk about it to. And then all of a sudden here you got this guy that's flown. I lived in New York at the time, like, you know, flown across the country to just sit and listen to you talk about something that all of your friends are sick of listening to you talk about and don't know how to help you with legitimately. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, cause they're kids too. Yeah, I mean, like you got, you know, you get the consent of the band, like, you know, you had two, the, the two remaining members like in the band. And like, yeah, it seems like it, it, it struck me as very like respectful. It wasn't like, you know, they were urging you to not make it. So whatever. Well, so that's the part I sort of skipped, right, was that I knew them through Federation X. So Federation X was a band and we did our thing in the Pacific Northwest. And then my bandmates you know, were from Olympia. So they'd actually played with Carp in a band called the Teamsters. And I was mm-hmm. so jealous of that, you know, because they grew up in a much cooler town than I did. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> and then when we were kind of got going a little bit, um, it was the early 2000s. Um, and we played with the Whip, you know, a few times. Okay. And um, so I met them and, um, all this stuff and then we played with and then we went on to play with big business and you know new jared and cody and you know scott and joe and you know Mm -hmm. like kind of knew all these people from so so when i um went to new york and started working in television um it was it was a cross-section of a few things it was a good story um it was really close to my heart which i don't think i 
totally realized the value of at that time. And also I was on the inside of it, right? Like the music scene, especially back then, I don't know if it's still like this, but back then it was like, they were very like exclusive, like unwilling to talk to people that were outside of it. And I think that was still um, in response to the culture shock that happened in the nineties where you have a town of population of 60,000 that's putting out bands like Nirvana and Bikini Kill and on a national and beat happening. The Melvins are suddenly finding themselves on a national stage and just totally fundamentally uncomfortable with it and mm-hmm. completely unable to deal with it on any level. Right. Like I always think back, like some kid from New York, like wouldn't have those problems. Right. Right. Like not in the same way. They grow up in an international stage. And Washington is the last place that you can be and still be in the continental United States. Mm-hmm. It's based around a culture of people that kept leaving from all other parts of the country over the history of the country to get away from everyone else. So it's inherent in the culture of just leave me alone. And it's completely changed now. But this is like the Northwest I grew up in. So just based on the fact that they were even just willing to speak to me all was totally because of Federation X and because they just saw me at least in some part as one of their own already. Yeah, that totally, that totally makes sense. Um, how long does it take you to make a documentary? Well, give or take? because it's, uh, it's been a huge part of my career and life and process and one that I hardly ever get to talk about. It's the arc is interesting to me because so I've made four films, four feature films. And the first one was Kill All Redneck Bricks. And that one took me five years because of no funding, right? You have to fund it yourself. Um, well, I, I funded my first film myself. Uh, that was about 15,000, I think, hard, uh, like cash out of pocket. Um, for hard expenses and then that I got from working in TV and then I also did every job myself right so no no um, no employee like no um, you know no crew Mm -hmm. so I shot it edited wrote it everything and a lot of documentaries don't survive that part because the person who's making it can't do all those jobs so they either have to have wildly impressive social skills to <laughs> traverse like a project of that difficulty level with other people without money or they figure out how to get money. I was, I came from TV. So I did work two or three years in TV in between the band and the movie. So I understood that what a monumental task it was and how expensive it was. So I didn't want to deal with money my first time around. So I just did it all myself. Um, And the 15,000 was like plane tickets and hard expenses for things that just couldn't have been paid for in any other way. So that took me five years basically to learn how to make a film. The Slits film also took me five years because for a totally different reason, which was financial. Because now I, ha- I was working with a major label band, right? You cannot avoid money anymore. Like uh, on the cart film, I literally just called Calvin Johnson and just who owned the entire catalog mm-hmm. and was just like, hey, can I just use all this music? And he's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. You know? And that was it. 
no money exchanged hands. It was just one guy calling another guy being like, hey, can we do this? And then being like, sure. So Calvin kind of single-handedly made that movie happen because if he hadn't have done that, it wouldn't have happened because right. it wouldn't have been possible. And I actually turned the slit stock down the first time I got offered it because I was so terrified of a major label band where that was not going to happen. I was not going to call somebody at Sony and just be like, but come on, you know, this is really cool. Like right. that wasn't going to work. So, um, and then the fear for me was that I would spend two or three years of my life, um, you know, working on a project that would then never come out because of financial reasons. You know, you can't DIY your way out of a $40,000 licensing bill. You know, that's not a work ethic issue. Um, and all I sort of had going on for me at that time was that I had a great work ethic. And so I turned it down and then I, two weeks later, I was like, that's crazy. You can't turn down a movie about the slits. It's way too amazing of an opportunity. And so I said, yes. And then my, all my worst nightmares came true when we were just about to finish. And, um, you know, the funding sources that we were involved with at the time were like, you know, through no fault of their own, we're like, we're, we're done. You know, this is beyond our means. We can't do this. And, um, we did what I call, well, what we call going dark, which is every ounce is depressing and terrible as it sounds, uh, where you basically just turned the lights off, uh, on the movie for what in this case was 18 months where I took, um, half a movie, you know, to Los Angeles with my last thousand dollars to try to find um, finishing funding for this film. I finished that people, that film in people's living rooms. Um, and it was absolutely demoralized. I was terrible. Um, and you know, my thing I got out of it was that nobody wants to help you fix your broken thing, right? There's, there's exactly two places that people want to get involved in a movie. And that's at the very beginning when they can put their finger, their uh, creative fingerprints on it. And at the very end, when it's just time to like sail into the Harbor and wave from the deck and be like, <laughs> Hey, we did it. You know, just like join the party at the end. Right. And, but yeah, when it's like in the middle of it, then like you, it's kind of all like kind of jumbled and you don't really know like what to make of it. That makes sense. It's just a big shit mess. Everybody's like, you know what, why don't you figure this out and call us back? Mm -hmm. um, which <laughs> wasn't an option when really what I needed help with was to pay this bill and um, just total luck one night. Um, at that time, I was still getting probably about three or four calls a year from people who would usually dudes that had seen the car doc that wanted to make their own movie that were just like wanted to talk to me about it. And I always talked to him about it. And this one particular, um, person was a guy named Michael Grodner who uh, did the Icarus line uh, Icar Icarus line must die movie and uh, he's doing his first narrative right now um, but he'd been in the television industry and he he was seeing the carp doc and was just curious about it and at the end of the conversation he was like how's the slit stock going and I'm like oh ab absolutely terribly and I told him, and he was like, oh, you should call this guy, Mark Venice, in uh, England. He's a producer over there. I made three movies with Mark. Completely changed my entire life. Awesome. Uh, 
Yeah, so he, he, he was in the uh, Don Lutz and the Chapman movies as well. Like you guys worked together. Yes. Yes. So what happened was, so five years learning how to make a movie, five years learning the business side of the movie. So the Slits movie started with punk rock handshake, just like the carp doc, except for there was no money involved and ended with agents, lawyers, like the film industry. Right. And so then my third movie, Rebel Dread, um, took 11 months. So from five years to 11 months, and the entire difference of that was the additive effect of the first two films. Learned how to make a film, first five years. Second five years, learned how the, the business would work in some level so that when we started Level Dread, I had some of the skill set in place. And then also we did for the first time what we always do now, what very few beginning filmmakers ever do, which is start with all the money first, right? We don't do anything until all of the money is in the bank account. Mm -hmm. As soon as all of the money is in the bank account, then you devise a plan that resembles a creative plan that resembles that amount of money that's possible with that amount of money. And then you just do it right. Like, because the problem with the low budget film is that it doesn't, um, it hits problems and then you go dark and you go back and forth. Uh, an indie film has to get up stay, and then stay running, start running and stay running until the end in order for it to work really well. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the, the fourth movie was for MGM. And uh, we made that five months. Okay. And that, that movie is the, you know, from a, people kind of hate that movie because they hate Mark David Chapman so much. So it's my lowest rating, I think, on IMDb. But like from a technical aspect, it's by far the best movie, the most complicated movie. But people just, they don't judge it on that. They judge it on the subject matter. And people like Don Letts. So that movie has a really high, that's a good movie too, but it has a, it's simple. Chapman it's doesn't simple. have a lot of fans. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I think they have like a 2.6 or something like that because people just hate Mark. Um, but yeah, I mean, that makes, I was listening to a podcast recently where they were talking about like a painter who went from like, you know, painting like 40 hours a week to painting like nine hours a week, but then like just like gets more shit done because they just like know like that process now. So they know how to actually like be productive like in that time period. So even just talking about like the business aspect of it, it seems like that's, that's what you're saying. Well, that's something really that I learned in New York because it's like, you know, the Northwest has changed dramatically, but the Northwest that I grew up in did not like to discuss money, mm -hmm. right? And also money was not ever supposed to touch your art, right? This was the 80s and the 90s. It was like, you were supposed to work a job that you hated and then keep your art pure, right? You're supposed to be a dishwasher. You know, the common thing back then was, you know, to be a dishwasher and then have your super awesome, get all your dignity from your band at night. And I moved to New York when I was 25 and took part in a totally different culture that understood money, embraced it, realized it was a part of life and operated out of that ethos. And I was just like, fuck that, you know, that old, that Washington bullshit of how to do that. Fuck that. I was like, I want to wake up in the morning and do what I do all day long. I don't want to start at 8 p.m. when I already hate myself. Right. From <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, I want to start in the morning. So I had to immediately realize that money was just the elephant in the room. You just had to address it and figure it out. 
I'm curious, um, as far as your accumulation of like filmmaking tricks, if you will, where like, obviously, like when you're doing a documentary, you kind of have to have a rotation of things in order to just kind of like keep the movie going. One thing I noticed that I particularly liked in the Don Lutz documentary was how you would have like photos and then it would be kind of like you're putting them down on top of one another by hand, for example. But like, I'm curious whether it comes from like you watching other documentaries and it being something interesting that you kind of like write down or file away for later somehow, or have you, do you have like a process of coming up with new things or how, how have you accumulated these tricks? Sure. I mean, I think more, more often than not, I mean, I watch a lot of documentaries, my little weird things that I don't watch them while I'm making one. I don't, once I start making one, I will watch no other docs until I'm done. In between docs, I watch like, like, like an embarrassing amount of them. Um, but I don't watch any while I'm working because I don't, now I'm working, right? Like, leave me alone. Like, <laughs> the door's shut now. I'm like trying to do what I'm doing, right? right. I don't want to. I don't know what they're doing. Um, and that's just my weird thing. It's certainly not a, doesn't need to be that way. Um, but, you know, like the, a lot of the things like you're referencing, like the picture thing, it's just mother, uh, you know, necessities, the mother of invention type thing. Like, you know, you need to use pictures and you would really like to not just cut to a picture. It's super boring. Right. So then you start to think like, what could we do to use this picture and not just cut to it? Um, and that was the hand thing. There was actually a more complicated idea that did not get used that I hope to use in a um, future. But yeah, so it's just like, you know, it's, it's looking at what you have to get done and the amount of, I actually like the money part of it because the money part of it, in a way, it, it, it defines the size of the room that you're working in. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, every artist needs to be an artist at every level, right? So like if you have a $2 budget or you have a $2 million budget, you should, as an artist, you should be able to do something with either mm-hmm. because that's the, that's, that's the challenge. Sure. Yeah. Um, so a lot of it just comes from like you, coming across the situation and then deciding like, oh, this is boring. What can I do differently with this? And then just kind of like assessing what you even can do and then like making something from there. Yeah, that makes sense. Exactly, Exactly. because then you, so when I first experienced that was with the slit stock, right? Because when I was making the carp dock, there was no money involved, right? So when you cut to archival, it was just this bag of archival that the amazing 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 carp fans supplied because there's no still one of the best fan bases i've ever come across with they are so super organized energized there's a lot of them they're an interesting group but they were just you know flooding me with pictures and vhs that they just had already felt was nobody was ever going to see so they were super excited but they weren't charging me by the second the -hmm. way that archival you know works now, so then the next movie was, you know, London punk in the 70s. And anybody who was shooting film in London in the 70s is now paying a mortgage with that. They're not just like, hey, use it. You know, wouldn't that be cool? Mm-hmm. They're like, they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, whatever. They're paying their mortgage with it. So, um, so then I had to, to answer these questions with, 
like drive with serious handcuffs on where you're like cutting a scene and you're like, okay, the archival for this scene is over here, but I'm also paying for it by the second mm -hmm. and I have this much money. So every time you made a creative decision, you had to look into your little bag of coins and um, make a financial decision and go back and forth between these two realities until the scene was done. So that movie really trained me to do that. Um, why did you decide to make your current project a podcast? Right. So we, so we made the Let Me Take You Down, the fourth film about Mark David Chapman for MGM Sky based on 39 hours of our audio archive with Mark David Chapman recorded in Attica prison in 1991 by investigative reporter Jack Jones, who I met like totally on a lark while well, I sought him out, but it was like a million to one shot that I actually like found him and was able to make this connection with him um, and form this partnership. And then uh, we made that movie. And then about six months into that relationship, he was like, Oh, Hey, did I mention that I have 19 hours of audio that nobody's ever heard with the son of Sam? And I was like, no, um, because that's a huge deal. I mean, you know, though these archives are a big way that these films get made, right? And um, if you're a filmmaker like a, myself who is not famous, right? Because there's two ways that films become worth money, film idea becomes worth money. One is through famous um, talent, right? Like uh, the subject matter, or in this case, infamous, or through the persons um, involved in its creation, like either a producer or a director, right? I am not famous. So I have to work with subject matter that is famous in order for the films to get made. So we made the Chapman movie based on that archive. And so I knew that we could make something based on the Berkowitz archive in a similar fashion. But it was such an, but I realized, you know, doing the Chapman film that films are cool. I like films. We want, obviously, we wanted to do a docu-series because they're longer and films kind of have a, they're so short, you know, like they kind of have a tendency to be like plot point to plot, it's like broad strokes, you know, it's like plot point to plot point and then you're done, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so much more nuance to these stories and to these archives that, um, you know, I wanted to, I didn't want what happened with the Chapman film, which started out as a docuseries and became a, a film to happen to the Berkowitz thing. So I was like, we should try to do this as a podcast because essentially kind of no one cares, you know, like podcasters, like where you, you leave it all on the table, you know, mm -hmm. it's on in the background. People are washing dishes or folding laundry or driving around or doing whatever. And they're just listening. I mean, I listen to tons and tons and tons of them. Sure. And so I was like, okay, this is a great medium for us to sort of, you know, leave it out on the table. So we had just had a relationship with MGM. So we talked to them and said, you know, hey, you guys have a podcast, you know, arm. And of course they did. Um, it's called Audio Up. And we started talking to Audio Up. And we were actually talking to them first about Mark doing, um, and they were like, but we told them we have two seasons because we have two archives. 
And they're like, well, we want to do David first. So we said, okay, and switched gears. Um, and we're contracted to do eight episodes and made 21, which is a terrible business decision. Um, but it was just how long the story was to me. And I call it a double deep dive because it's, you know, for the true crime fans, it's like, if you listen to an episodic sh show and they do a deep dive, it's like two to four episodes. Mm. If you listen to a seasonal show on something, it's eight to 12 and ours is 21. So it's totally massive. Um, and uh, it's essentially David telling his own life story through this interview from 1980, which I digitized myself. I mean, it was on nine reel to reels and it's sitting in a closet in upstate New York for four decades. You know, Did you record it at home? Yeah. In my bedroom. Using what? I used uh, Zoom. Oh, what's it called? Zoom 6 HD or just like a black little thing like about that big and hmm. i use my lapel mics from the documentary stuff um and you know i just held it well no i didn't hold it i taped it to a, a microphone stand with a windscreen and cool and it's totally fine um you teach something about ucla you, you were telling me what do you teach yeah. exactly yeah i teach writing for documentary which is um totally exciting for me i've taught it before i taught it in washington for a couple of years and it's like a total departure from the way that production uh has been taught in the past which i am really excited about it's um and i i taught it before for years so i've seen it work i know it works um whereas like production in the past was i think based around a basic like uh you know it was a byproduct of previous generations you know that grew up in a physical world you know you want the window open you have to turn a crank and the window opens and you know it's mm -hmm. just not the world anymore and so i think coming out of that frame of reference there was this huge amount of like anxiety about equipment and so production instruction reflected that and they taught you you know how to use a camera and they taught you how to use editing equipment and then they're like okay we're done they didn't teach storytelling um, and that was just sort of it. And I always thought that was ridiculous and I didn't go to film school. So um, I was just like, that's like not the important part, you know, like learning how to use the camera and learning how to use the editing equipment has only gotten like less important as time has gone on. Um, that when people just grow up with both those things in their pocket their entire lifetime, that anxiety doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. But growing up with an editing platform in your pocket doesn't teach you how to tell a story. Right. So I teach the organizing, the organization of creative content. Um, I'm just curious, how long did it take you to, uh, without going to film school, how long did it take you to like learn enough to uh, make a film? And did you just like learn by just like reading a lot of books or from like uh, apprenticeships or what'd you do? I did, uh, did an internship. So I was living in New York City when I decided that I was going to start um, making films and sort of try to start to leave the band world. And I looked at film school and they were really expensive. I didn't have any money. I was working as an art handler and living in a like a warehouse, excuse me. And um, somebody, <laughs> this changed my life. 
somebody was like, well, why don't you do an internship? And I was like, you know, internships are for rich kids. And this is the line that changed my life. They were like, well, you go on tours that don't make money, right? There you go. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I had no defense for that. That was certainly true. So I was like, eh, right. So I, I, uh, I decided how many days a week I thought that I could afford to not get paid. And I decided that that number was one. So I wrote 50 emails um, offering my services, quote unquote, uh, for one day a week. And I got one email back out of 50 and I interned them for intern, unpaid internship uh, for them for three weeks and got hired in my third week full time and worked for them for two years before I left to make my first movie. And I never have worked for anybody else since then. And so that was 2011. Um, going back to UCLA, like I'm curious if yeah. there's a couple of like really key bullet points, like free, free samples that you feel like sharing as far as like what you want students to like come away with. Yeah, so it's super process based. Like I believe in like um, creative like ex uh, exploration and um, you know experimentation, but I think it should be metered by process. So it's like I encourage people to start with a process and then kind of whack out on it a little bit, and then when you get lost in your whack out, then you come back to the process and then you go back and forth between these two things until you're done, right? So I teach, um, first off, I teach the organization of a one sheet, which helps you take like, I like to say an idea that doesn't even make sense to you and begin to make it make sense to everyone. Mm -hmm. We turn it into like uh, one sentence, sometimes called a logline, elevator pitch, a graphic, two paragraphs, that sort of begins the organization of the entire project. Then I teach outlining, scripting, um edit process pass system everything that you can do in order to basically create an infrastructure so that you can keep going because mm -hmm. basically what happens the reason that documentary projects everywhere all around the world are famously stalled out everywhere right and the, often the reason that they're stalled out um, at the lower levels or smaller film levels is because people get lost in the process and they get in too deep and the whole thing bogs down and stops and a lot of that is due to the fact that they don't understand that they're trying to do three or four steps at the same time which is like super hard like mm -hmm. impossible and they think it's them so when they get bogged down they go oh my god i'm a dumbass and you're like no you just didn't separate these three jobs you tried to do all three of them at the same time and so my whole process is based on separating these things out because any reasonably intelligent person can complete one task at one time, right? Mm -hmm. You just go from task to task and it's really not that difficult after that. So a lot of it's just like organization. It's uh, it's kind of all organization. Yeah, it's like a it's like a Zappa quote that I that I tell students sometimes and uh, just paraphrasing it, it's like in order to be the most creative creatively chaotic as possible you have to be like as organized as possible like that's kind of like your thing absolutely yeah. yeah so i never heard that quote thank you for sharing it that's really cool i'll probably steal it, use it. oh yeah absolutely thank you so much for for joining me today yeah um, absolutely.